Okay, let's turn finally in our Bible to our sermon text, Acts chapter 14. Uh, there's a sermon notes page, and it has uh, the text printed on the one side. The back is, the, is a little outline for you. Uh, these, uh, these are narratives, these historical narratives. So there's a lot of details, and so hopefully the little out, outline gives you a kind of a sense and the flow of how it's all working. Uh, and I don't, I don't know if it was in the bulletin itself, but I believe I put a little map out this morning. So uh, this is Paul and Barnabas, their f- the first missionary journey. And so uh, you might have a Bible map in the back, or that little map I printed out might help you just to see where they went, to see the distances between things and the, and the region in which uh, they were ministering. Uh, there's also some kids' notes uh, in the back, uh, on the table in the back as well, uh, if you're a kid. So um, it's weird being in the middle this morning, so some of you look like you moved your, so- your seats. You guys moved, I moved. I'm not sure who's sitting where this morning. Kenny's in the wrong spot, Patricia's in the wrong spot, okay? Um, you know, yeah, new spot, yeah, so it's, a, it's new. So if I look up you and I'm like, who's that person over there? It's because I'm usually used, used to you sitting there or you there. And so, and you're used to me here in this locked in the corner over here. So uh, if I venture out a little far, well, don't get too nervous, okay? Okay, uh, Acts chapter 14 this morning. Acts 14, uh, the conclusion of this first missionary journey of the apostle and uh, his assistant, his helper, Barnabas. Now at Iconium picking up where we left off last uh, passage. They entered together, Paul and Barnabas, into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And notice there he's using apostle in a more generic sense of those who were sent out. When, a, when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, to be healed, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, or Jupiter, the Roman version, and Paul Hermes, or Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, or Jupiter, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. And to these words, all of God's people say, Amen. A servant is not greater than his master. All right, two of us learned our Bible verses this week. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will persecute you, Jesus said. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? What does Jesus say the rest of the verse? I have overcome the world. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ. Provided, provided what? You know what Romans 8, verse 17 says? Provided we suffer with him. Let no one be moved by afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this, for afflictions. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. These are the words of Jesus, the words of the Apostle Paul. And interestingly, Paul says those verses I just read for you from 1 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. He says those words with his lips or with his pen because he lived those words. He lived out the very words of Jesus. In fact, these are promises of Jesus. We think of Jesus' promises as good stuff, right? Quote-unquote good stuff. You know, if we ask, if we seek, if we knock, I mentioned yesterday at our our prayer group, uh, if we ask, seek, and knock, the Lord is going to uh, answer us and give us what we're seeking, uh, and he's going to open the door. And we saw that that good thing, the gift that he gives us is the Holy Spirit himself. But Jesus also promises persecution. 
He also promises tribulation. He also promises all kinds of strife in this world. But his promise also says, take heart, I have overcome the world. And we see all that this morning here in Acts chapter number 14, the end of this second missionary journey. The principle, really, of what Paul and and Barnabas are experiencing and preaching is found there again in verse number 22, where we read that as they were going back and strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith, here's what their message was, according to Luke. Luke is summarizing for us all that Paul and Barnabas were saying to those churches. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you believe that this morning? It's what Jesus says. It's what the apostle says. It's what Jesus lived. It's what his apostles lived. And so let's look this morning here uh, at this 14th chapter of the book of Acts, and we'll see this principle of entering God's kingdom through many tribulations, and we'll see it not just in the actions and the experiences of the apostle and, uh, and Barnabas, but also in the message and the words that they preach. And these are insightful words for us too. We're almost 2,000 years after, the, after these facts occurred. And it's important for us, uh, and it's important for me, uh, as your pastor, to remind you of what the Bible says about suffering, about uh, tribulation, about trials, about temptations, about accusations, about persecution. Uh, In in the West, we are living in a time in which it's more and more becoming normal to persecute Christians. We're no longer freed from that. And so it's important for us to prepare ourselves and to bolster our faith, to prepare our minds for persecution uh, that's going to keep coming more and more unless the Lord Intervene. So notice, first of all there, uh, the outline is just, uh, because it's the travel, uh, sort of a diary, if you will, and it's, it's, a, it's an account of what we see in these various places, our outline just follows the path, and we'll, we'll see this principle played out in various ways. So notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 7, so again, if you turn back there, verse uh, chapter 14, 1 through 7, uh, they make their way to Iconium. Why? Why do they make their way to Iconium? What do we see last Sunday, the very end of chapter 13? Why do they end up there? They were persecuted. Okay, did God, uh, was that God's purpose and plan for them? Was it the providence of God that they were persecuted in one place and they ended up in another? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we, we've seen in chapter 13 especially, uh, their very beginning, this big principle and idea that the church in Antioch, they were praying and seeking and desiring to send the gospel out through Paul and Barnabas to uh, the Gentiles. And the Holy Spirit said to the church in Antioch to set apart Paul and Barnabas. And they were sent out, we saw, chapter 13, uh, at verse 3. The church sent them out. But then in verse 4, I mentioned uh, last Sunday, that they were, or two Sundays ago, I think it was, they they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So all that's going on here, all the decisions to go to this city and that town and this region and not that town, it's the power and the purpose and the providence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God drives them by the means of persecution to Iconium. And they, they end up there in a synagogue. And just like last chapter, last Sunday we saw, there's another revival there in this synagogue of Jews and Gentiles. The Lord comes and gives new life to Jewish 
believers and Gentiles who had become uh, followers of the God of Israel, God-fearers or converts to Judaism, amongst that synagogue, many, we read, come to believe. And so remember what our definition of a revival was. It's the extraordinary blessing of God upon his ordinary means. They preach the ordinary word, we might say, and God by his Holy Spirit pours himself out and people repent and believe and they are saved. And it's the same pattern we've seen. Chapter 13, we saw it in Salamis, uh, and we see it, we saw it in Pisidia last Sunday. It's the principle of the Apostle Paul where he says the gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile or for the Greek. And we see uh, this idea then uh, that, uh, as verse 1 says, that uh, a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed after they had preached. This is the kind of preaching that we should be praying for. Uh, that yours truly needs to strive for, but that we should be expecting that God uses his word, that God uses the word, and he gives new life to people through the means of his word. Amen? A great number of Jews and Gentiles believe, and we can only pray and hope and and trust the Holy Spirit uh, to do that here. But notice in verse 2, then, the response. The response. I mentioned before that wherever God builds a church, the devil builds a chapel, right? A pl- well, a playground too. <laughs> a chapel, okay? Wherever God built a church, the devil built a chapel. And so we have it here. The gospel is going out. People are he- be, uh, he- uh, hearing the gospel. A great number of the synagogue are believing, but, verse 2, it's not a but God statement, but a but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. While heaven is triumphing, hell's bringing tribulation. And that is to be expected. That's to be expected. A servant is not greater than his master. In the world you will have tribulation. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That's the message here once again. But I want you to see there uh, in verse 3, Something really amazing. So they go to the synagogue, they preach, a great number are converted. There's a response of absolute opposition, of stirring up minds, poisoning minds, uh, persecution we're going to see ensues. But notice verse 3. So, notice this, this, this conclusion, kind of a statement. So they remained a long time. There, this, this, this opposition is rising up. And Luke says, so they remained. They didn't fearfully wimp out and leave. They stayed. They stayed. Speaking boldly for the Lord. Speaking boldly for the Lord. Now, this, whenever we see in the book of Acts... There are various phrases that, are, that, are, that have been used already that we're going to continue to see used as well. And one of them is this. This boldness, speaking boldly for the Lord. That's the result of another phrase that we already saw in chapter 13. That Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Holy Spirit is to speak boldly. That's what Acts says. Go back in chapter 1 real quick. Chapter 1, verse number 8 in that opening uh, 
sort of thesis statement of Jesus, chapter 1, at verse 8, he, tell, he, uh, he told the apostle or the disciples to stay in Jerusalem, to pray in that room, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But then notice the rest of the phrase. What's the purpose of the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon those first disciples? And you will be my witnesses. What does that mean? To be to those who spread the gospel, who speak the word, who preach the good news. Notice again, chapter number two at verse four, that comes to reality. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what was the result of the, of the Holy Spirit filling them? They began to speak, as the text says, in other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we, and we talk about the, this, this language here is speaking of known languages, because all these Jews from all various regions of the world had come, and they heard the works of God in their own languages. They were filled so that they might preach the gospel to people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, or at least amongst the Jews who were, who were scattered, uh, scattered throughout people of every tribe, tongue, language, nation. Look in chapter 4. Chapter 4 at verse number 8. We see it again. Uh, Peter and John preach the good news. God performs a miracle. There's opposition. They are hauled before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Verse 8. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. What did he do in response to the Holy Spirit filling him? What does chapter 4 verse 8 say? He said to them, he began to proclaim who Jesus is. Again, look in chapter 4 at verse number 31. After Peter and John were released from prison, they made their way to a prayer meeting of believers. In verse 31 says, When they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. What's the result of that? They continue to speak the word of God with boldness. And on this first missionary journey, we've already seen this. Chapter 13, verse number 9. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked at that man, Simon, son of Jesus, or, uh, 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 bar Jesus, sorry, bar Jesus, son of Jesus. He looked at him intently and he spoke with boldness the very word of God. The very word of God. Speaking boldly in the book of Acts, we might say it's a synonym for being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the result of the Holy Spirit filling or the consequence of it, uh, but it's also a synonym throughout the book of Acts. So whenever you read the Holy Spirit filling, you typically see that they spoke in boldness. And sometimes you only see the, the second phrase. They spoke the word of God with boldness. Why? Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And I mentioned, I think I mentioned last Sunday, that on the one hand, the scriptures very clearly tell us as believers that we have already, as believers, been baptized in the Spirit of God. We have every single spiritual blessing in the heavenly places already in Christ. On the other hand, we are told to continually be filled with the Spirit. Well, what gives? 
Do we have the Holy Spirit or not? We have the Holy Spirit. But we are to continually ask God to fill us again with the Spirit that we might be bold and confident in the world in which we live. And so our task then as the church, our task as believers uh, is to pray to God that he would fill us so that we might be bold in speaking the word and then leave the results to him. Our task is to pray and to preach. It's God's task to do the filling. It's God's task to do the saving. It's God's task to do the convincing. But it's our calling to to pray as the church said in chapter 4, to pray that God would give us this holy boldness and confidence by the power of his Holy Spirit so that when persecution and suffering and tribulation comes, just like the apostles here, we might too be known for being those who remain for a long time speaking with boldness as long as God gives us an open door. So there's preaching, there's persecuting, there's more preaching, there's even more persecution. Verse 4 and 5. It's inevitable. Again, Jesus said it was. Paul experienced what Jesus said. And Paul told Timothy, uh, and Paul told the Thessalonians, this is inevitable, we might say. The believer is going to be persecuted. There's more escalation of persecution. The city is divided. And so there's a plot to mistreat them, no doubt to beat them, to try to stone them, to arrest them, whatever they got to do. They learned of it, verse 6 tells us, and they fled to Lystra and Derby. Now, on the one hand, Jesus says persecution is inevitable. On the other hand, he tells, we see by the example of Paul and Barnabas uh, that they also use their brains. They use their smarts. They use their common sense. We're not to seek out persecution for persecution's sake and, and, and try to be martyrs who have stigmata in our hands because we've been persecuted. No, when they found out about this plot, they the door to that city was closed. And they went to the next city. And the door there was open. And they preached the word there too. And eventually they were kicked out of that city too. We remain where, we are, where God calls us for as long as he calls us, for as long as the door is open to, to speak the word, to preach the word. Despite the persecution, despite the hardships, it's inevitable. But Jesus promises He promises that even in the midst of the hardship and the persecution, the tribulation, he promises to be with us. He promises to be right here with us, present in our midst. When two or three gather together, there I am. Go, baptize, preach the gospel, because I am with you always to the close of the age. And so persecution comes, but yet the gospel cannot be thwarted. Its power, we see here, increases, only increases by persecution. And we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid. All the cultural, uh, annihil- our culture is living in a time, it's a culture of death. And uh, our, all, the, all the, uh, the angst of our culture uh, and its uh, self-seeking annihilation, it feels like, uh, all, all this stuff is affecting us as Christians. 
It's affecting us. But we should have confidence. Confidence. Yes, on the one hand, the Supreme Court has said, and I mentioned this uh, a few sermons ago, uh, there was a a fateful decision made uh, many, many decades ago that basically said that uh, the American definition of liberty is to be able to create one's own reality. And because of that, you turn on the TV and you see what you see. Because of that decision, that somehow we as human beings are like God. Because of that cultural chaos. Should we retreat into the desert like hermits and monks? Or should we stay? Should we pray for boldness and preach the word? So they make their way out of the city. You see that there. Verse 8 and following. You see that there. And and they uh, get there to Lystra. And just like we saw back in chapter 3 where Peter and John are in the temple, there's a man there uh, who was born uh, unable uh, to to walk, we see the same thing here with the Apostle Paul, this crippled man who's never walked before. He's there and he's listening to Paul's preaching and Paul looks at him and he tells him to stand up and he does. God was doing the signs and the wonders, we say, confirming the word uh, as, as the text describes. So there's preaching and there is this miracle. And this, uh, this pattern uh, that we see throughout uh, this chapter and throughout the whole book, in, in fact, as verse 3 describes it, uh, the apostles preached boldly, and it was the Lord who is the one who bore witness to the word of his grace by granting signs and wonders to be done by his hand. It shows us the purpose of miracles. It's always to testify to the power of God that's being proclaimed. That it's God who's almighty. That it's Jesus Christ who's alive. And the preaching is always meant to point back to that great reality. And the miracles and the signs and the wonders are always meant to confirm the word that's being spoken. That Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. And we see it here. The resurrected Savior through the Apostle who's been resurrected from his death in his soul to spiritual life raises this man up. But then notice the crowds go wild. The crowds go wild. And they believe that the gods have come down. They think Zeus and Hermes or Jupiter and Mercury have come down to their city to visit. And so the response is that they are going to do what pagans do. They're going to take an animal. They're going to sacrifice it to Zeus and Hermes, Paul and Barnabas, who are standing right there uh, in their midst because they believe that they are the gods who have come down. Why do they do this? Why do they do this? Well, there's an ancient Greek poet who described uh, in this very region of what is today modern-day Turkey, but uh, in those days, uh, this Phrygian hill country uh, they described, uh, he described this poet Ovid uh, in a poem that in times past, the gods came down. Jupiter and Mercury or Zeus and Hermes came down to this, this hilly region uh, of the ancient world and they asked the people of the town for hospitality. And this town that they're in here, uh, uh, Lystra, is uh, in this very 
same region. So this is a, a, a myth of theirs, a, a historical myth in their mind, a, uh, a religious poem that they all knew. And so they, these gods came down, they said, or, or Ovid said in the poem, and he asked, or they asked for, for hospitality, and they asked 10,000 times, and 10,000 times they were rejected by the people of this Lyconian region, this Phrygian hill country. There was one peasant couple, though, that lived in a straw house. And they welcomed in these two strangers, unbeknownst to them, as the poem says, Zeus and Hermes. In response, the gods sent a flood to that region. And guess whose house, the only house, that wasn't destroyed? That little peasant couple living in that straw house. And so they were terrified. They thought, once again, the gods have come down. And this time, we've got to honor them and serve them and do things that, uh, that are required of us as worshipers of these gods so that we aren't flooded again and we all perish. Paul and Barnabas get wind of what's going on. They, they figure out what's happening there. And notice they don't just miraculously know everything. They have to learn this stuff. These aren't supermen. These are real human beings. They learn about what's going on, we read there, and they, they tear like, like Jews, they tear their garments, they, they, and they rush out into the crowd. Uh, this is a response of, uh, of blasphemy, right? To tear one's garments. You know, far be it from us to even be bystanders to blasphemy and idolatry. Men, what are you doing? Notice their message. They emphasize a couple of things. They emphasize that they have a common humanity with these uh, Lyconian people here in the, the city of Lystra. We have a common humanity, they describe there. Notice, we are of like nature as you, right? We're, 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 we are human beings. We're not gods. And they also recognize that as human beings with a like humanity, uh, that they also have this desire to worship, Turn from this, uh, these gods to a, a God who's actually alive, a living God. And we're here to proclaim him to you. This is the good news. The God who has made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, is alive. He's alive. And he's testified to you over generations and generations. He sent rain and, and fruitful seasons. He satisfied your hearts with food and gladness. But notice they could scarcely even get a word out of their mouth. And they still were going to sacrifice their animals to what they believe were gods. Now when this happens, notice who's following them in verse number 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Where did, so if you read backwards in this chapter 14 into chapter 13, where, where have Paul and Barnabas just been? Antioch, Iconium, now they're in Lystra. These persecutors, these opposers, these enemies of Paul and Barnabas, these enemies of Jesus Christ, they have followed the apostle and Barnabas all the way there. They've traveled over a hundred miles trying to find out where have these men been 
no doubt asking people on the roads and in towns, have you seen these two men? And they finally find them. Notice, all who desire to live a, live a godly life will suffer persecution. The servant is not greater than his master. Persecution is inevitable. It's going to follow you as a Christian. It's going to follow us as the Christian church. And they persuade the crowds against what Paul had been saying. And so they stoned the apostle. Paul describes this event in one of his letters in 2 Corinthians chapter number 11 at verse 25 uh, where he's describing all this sufferings that he's undergone. He says, uh, chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, uh, verse 20, 25, just, be, just before that, verse 23. Um, Far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. That's the maximum amount of uh, whippings you can, you can receive. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stones. When was that one time? It was right here. Right here. They thought he was dead. They drag him out of the city, his, his lifeless carcass. They drag out of the city. But what's interesting is verse 20. They thought he was dead. They dragged him out of the city. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. What does that sound like to you? They thought he was dead. They dragged him out. The disciples gather around. Who are the disciples? The ones who just, in the synagogue, the Jews and Gentiles who believed. They gathered around the lifeless body of the Apostle Paul who had preached a gospel to them, and they believed. And the disciples here, no doubt, in Lystra, who heard the message and believed. The man who was healed, who believed. They thought he was dead, and he rose up. What does that sound like? It's a miracle, right? It's a resurrection. He said that in, one, in 2 Corinthians 11, near death, multiple times. They gathered around. What do you think they were doing gathering around? Taking selfies? Praying. Praying. And he was raised up from near death. What did he do? What did he do? He entered the same place that he just was dragged out of where he was stoned to near death. Why would he do such a thing? Is he insane? Are you crazy? Why would you ever do that? You've just been dragged here, stoned and then dragged to your death and you go back. Why would he do that? And what do you think he was doing when he went back into the city? We're not told here. We have to imply from what we've been seeing so far. But he goes back into the city. What do you think he was doing? Preaching. With what? Boldness. Why? The Holy Spirit. He was filled again with the Holy Spirit and with boldness. And he went back into the very place 
of absolute opposition. He went back into the lion's den. He went back into the fiery furnace. He went back into that very same place where there was utter opposition, not just of pagans, but also the Jewish, uh, uh, these Jewish men who had followed them. He goes back there and no doubt was preaching once again to them. That's boldness, loved ones. That's confidence. Are we going to back down as Christians? And I don't mean in politics, and I don't mean in any other way. Are we going to back down spiritually from all the opposition that comes against us? Are we going to cower and say, well, you know, one plus one really doesn't equal two. There's not really just male and female anymore. There's all these genders. There's all these self-identifications. Are we just going to back down and say, well, you know, we've got to get along and go along and so forth? Didn't we just say in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker of the heavens and the earth? What did God do when he made the heavens and the earth in Genesis 1? What's the last thing he created? He created the human race. And what does the Bible say? As clear as day, male and female, he created he them. Now, I heard this week, I I heard this week, someone tried to explain that. The Bible uses they, them pronouns. Male and female, he created them. Does the Bible say that? But who's the them in Genesis 1? Male and female. <laughs> the them is male and female, right? We believe that. We believe that. And that, so that's the, great, that's the great opposition that we face. It's who is, what does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be a human being? To be made in the image and likeness of God. That's not hateful. That's not, that's not uh, fearful. That's not phobic. No, that's to say the truth, which is what it is. And we pray and trust that God is going to give us boldness to speak that truth with love, with compassion, with gentleness, but also with his convincing power, with his convincing power. So we see that persecution constantly is arising, uh, but that yet there's constant response of the apostle, full of God, full of the Holy Spirit, to preach, to be full, to be convincing. And so they're at Iconium, they're at Lystra, there's preaching, there's opposition, there's more preaching, there's more opposition. But notice then what happens next. So if you have that map in front of you or the back of your Bible, you see a little map, they're, they're making this sort of this, uh, this, this clockwise journey throughout sort of southern, uh, the, the middle and the southern part of what's today modern-day Turkey. And they're preaching there. They're full of opposition. And they go back to each and every single one of those congregations that they had founded. Every single same city that they've just gone to where they were persecuted and opposed and even chased and even beaten and even dragged out almost to death. They go back to those places. They, so they follow up in Lystra, where they just were, Iconium, Antioch in the region of Pisidia, and then back down to the south part, Perga, which is the first town they ended up in uh, on the mainland. And what are they doing there? They're strengthening and encouraging the disciples. Strengthening and encouraging the disciples. Why do they need encouraging, brothers and sisters? Why do they need encouraging? They just seem the guy that's brought the gospel to them, dragged, or they heard, beat, stoned, dragged out, opposed, chased, hounded, and so forth. They've just seen this. 
They just heard the, the reports. And so they're going back to those churches that they have founded. Now they're going back in a counterclockwise way, and they go there, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue the faith. And what are they saying? Notice the word they're speaking. And again, that verse 22, the end, the end part, the, the big theme of this chapter is that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Jesus said it. Paul experienced it. Can God build the church in our nation through tribulation? Is Jesus able to build his church and keep his church alive and to cause his church to thrive despite persecution? And it's not just, not just I shouldn't say despite, I should say through, right? Through, because of, through the means of persecution. So we shouldn't think of persecution as the devil winning. No, it's just another, another little speed bump that God knows and God's already orchestrated in purpose and plan that we're going to go over it and through it, not around it, but through it, to get to where God wants us to be. And so they're encouraging with the word. Encouraging with the word. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Where did Paul get that from? He got it from Jesus. He got it from his own experience. Secondly, strengthening and encouraging the church with leadership. With leadership. So they've, Paul the Apostle, Barnabas, his helper, his assistant, they had John at one point as well. Uh, they've gone, they've preached, and people have believed, and they've stayed there for as long as they could. They've built them up in the, in the faith, they prayed together and so forth, uh, and they've left. We can only imagine what that must have been like. So now they're going back, and they're strengthening those churches, not just with words, but also in deeds, by setting up a leadership, a structure uh, of church governance and shepherding uh, and guiding and helping. Uh, and they're described here. Uh, it says here that they went and they, they, or they set apart, they appointed elders. Uh, those are the pre- presbyters. Uh, pres- uh, presbyteros is the, the Greek term. Now it's interesting because in later on we're going to see in chapter 20, there are different words used for the, those who are leaders in the church. In chapter 20, at verse 17, uh, Luke describes uh, them as well as elders, presbyters. And then later on in chapter 20, uh, at verse 28, when Paul speaks to the Ephesian church and he prays for them uh, and he leaves them, uh, he calls them bishops or overseers, but he also calls them shepherds. They are described as as presbyters, they're they're episcopoi, they're overseers. Um, They're also Many. They're also shepherds. So uh, various terms are used in the Bible for those who lead. Uh, it's not, I'm not going to get into all the different church polity options, but what it means is that they set up leaders. They found, as we saw back in chapter number six, when there was a struggle in the church, they needed, the apostles were serving tables and helping widows every day. They needed to find some way to serve them and to assist them. What do they do? They, they prayed and they set apart seven godly men to serve those tables. Now, these are described as elders or overseers or shepherds, uh, the more spiritual kind of leaders, pastors, elders, as we call them. Uh, And so they set them up with leadership. And so we see that, right? The importance, the importance in the midst of persecution, the, the, the importance of leadership. And so pray for the elders of this church. Pray for your deacons. Pray for us, uh, pray for me as a pastor, pray for us 
uh, that we would be those who encourage and strengthen you to face the oppositions that are inevitably going to come so that we'd be strong in our faith and not just strong but bold to speak out uh, with the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so they make their way all the way back down, uh, all the way back around. They, they get back on a boat. They travel to Antioch. Uh, and this is the Antioch uh, on the Orontes River, uh, sort of the Antioch uh, of the ancient world and even, uh, even still exists today. Uh, and we read there, verse 27, all that God had done with them, this is their report to the church. They reported that all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Notice who did the opening. Who, who opened the door? The church in Antioch they, because they sent Paul and Barnabas? Paul and Barnabas because they were so smart and they snuck in and they found out little insidious ways? Who opened the door? Is there a literal door? <laughs> no, it's a saying, right? He opened a, a, a way, a path, an opportunity. Right? He opened the door. It was the Lord who did it. Later on in chapter 16, we're going to read that, that God, the Lord, opened the heart of Lydia. God does the opening here, notice. And God has opened a door of faith for where we live. Because he's still here with us. The lampstand is still burning bright in this place, Right? There's still a door open. He calls us to pray for boldness, to walk the door, and speak with boldness the good news of Jesus Christ who saves sinners. The same Jesus Christ who saved sinners in all these cities, Iconium, Lystra, uh, Antioch, Perga, and so forth. The same Jesus is the same Jesus today. And he says to sinners, no matter the sin, he says to sinners, no matter the confusion, He says to sinners, no matter the ignorance, he says to every sinner that he is the Savior and that he alone can forgive sins and he alone can wash away sins. He can remove guilt. He can take off burdens. And he can give you that light burden, which is following him, knowing him in joy. So God has opened a door for us here In this place, let us ask him for the Holy Spirit to be bold, to speak it, and ask God for the power of his Holy Spirit to water the seeds that we speak and that we plant so that they would give forth harvest and to see sinners saved, saved from their sins, saved from hell itself, saved from the wrath of God. Let's pray. Our great God, our merciful God, we bless you, we praise you for the good news of Jesus which comes to each and every one of us here today. Give us the faith to embrace the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves sinners. Lord, help us, we pray, with your Holy Spirit to be bold, to be confident, uh, to speak forth the word uh, as it is your word, not our opinion, but your word. Enable us to do that. Give us wisdom in doing that. Give us graciousness in doing that. Lord, give us power in doing that as well. We ask it all in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Let's respond to the word by singing.